me the book of Ruth, please. I submit to you that, that it, is your, it is your decisions that will determine your destiny or your destination. Some people say, well, I'm just destined for something. And they kind of almost imply that it's something they couldn't help. But the reality is the only destination or predestination that the believer has is found in Romans 8.29 that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And when God takes you into his family, he says, I'm not going to leave you like you are. You know, you're a mess. And if, and if, if, it, was your, if it was your understanding that when you came to the altar that day or that night and you wept and cried out to God and asked him to save your soul, if it was your understanding that somehow their magic wand would be waved and he would change all the things in your life and you would be somehow transformed in a moment, uh, you probably have been disillusioned. Because when God took you in, he took you in like every other person, a baby, screaming, crying, wetting, and other things. And for this period of time, began the process, at that time, began the process of changing you into the image of, that's the only predestination that's found in the Bible. Don't let the Calvinists distort that word. But, but your life began, spiritual life that is, began with that critical decision to repent and trust Christ as your Savior. But that wasn't the last decision you had to make. Somebody says, well, I'm not going to make a decision at all. By not making a decision, you've decided not to make a decision. You've already decided something. And it doesn't matter that you decide not to decide. You've decided. You understand. Decisions make up the component or the, uh, the entirety of our lives. I don't know what decisions you've made. You've not made the same as I, nor I have you. But it's not what happens to you in life. It's what you do or what decisions you do make relative to what happens to you that really matters. In the case that I cited at the very beginning with Hitler coming home from the war, disillusioned and latching on to these bitter, angry, ugly people, he made a decision that cost people's lives. You can be the opposite of that. And this is the classic example of that. Look here in the book of Ruth, if you will, please. We begin this chapter. It's, it's interesting that we title it uh, Ruth, as it should be, because she surely is the primary character in the entire book. No other character supersedes her. But I submit to you that secondarily, we could say that uh, that the subtitle of this book would certainly be accurate to say Ruth subtitled The Transformation of the Mother-in-Law, Naomi. Because here is the transformation of a woman 
who went from bitter to blessed, fruitless to fruitful. From the first chapter to the fourth chapter, we see a, a, a changed woman because of decisions she made. Give me, let me give you a little history before we go too far. What brings us to verse number one of this chapter, uh, chapter one? It says, in the time of the judges. Uh, if I can give you the history in a little nutshell, before this came along, we have about 400 years of history, all the way back to Moses. You see, when, Abra uh, when uh, Joseph and his family, Israel, uh, came to um, uh, uh, Egypt, they were but a family, not a nation. A hundred, hundreds of years later, they left under the leadership of Moses, no longer a family, but now a nation. And God gave them in the 40-year span of time in the wilderness laws and statutes and all the things necessary to function orderly as a nation. And then when Moses died after 120 years on this earth, God gave them the leadership of Joshua for the next 25, 26 years in the promised land. And they conquered city after city, not all of it. That task, he said, as for me and my house, will serve the Lord, but you're going to have to serve after me. And then came the period of the judges. I wish I could say that that 300-year period, if you look at those 21 chapters of the book of Judges, that's a lot to jam into 21 chapters. 300 years. I wish I could say that from chapter 1 to chapter 21, it was a good thing. But you know the story. Uh, there was the disobedience and then the discipline and, and then the crying out to God and then the delivery and then, uh, then every 25 to 35 to 45 years, the repeat and Samson came along and Gideon came along and Deborah came along and the next deliverer came along and just cyclically changed over the 300 years and Somewhere in that 300 years, we find Naomi and her husband. It says, in the time of the judges. You see that? In the days when the judges ruled. What was the primary characteristic of the, those days? If you back up, just flip your page back. Look in chapter 21, verse 20, uh, 25. What's the nature of that, that period when it says, in the days when the judges ruled? Every man did that which was... Mm. Here's an example. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. It says, A certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of, the two son, of his two sons, Malan and Shilion, Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left, and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Ortha, and the name of the other, Ruth, and they dwelled there about 10 years. And 
Malan and Chilion, the two sons, died also of them. And the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. A moment ago I said that the book of Judges compresses 300 years into 21 chapters. Did you notice something here? It doesn't say exactly 10 years. There may have been a year or two more or less. We don't know. It, it was at least 10 years. In just five verses, God compresses the events of a family life of over 10 years. Um, if I started writing the book about our life, it would take far more than just five verses to tell you what's happened in the last 10 years. Staggering. But you wouldn't want to read most of it. Uh, old B.R. Lakin used to say about people who wrote autobiographies, he said, it's not the book that they write about themselves I want to read, it's the book they don't write about themselves. That's the one I want to read. Give me all the juicy details. You see, we don't write those details because they're rough. They're difficult. And here in these first five chapters, we see decisions had been made that impacted a decade of a family's life. Now, I'm going to hone in on Naomi particularly. We could argue that it was all Elimelech's fault. I don't know that. Perhaps, perhaps we might say Naomi was being a dutiful wife to follow her husband to Moab. It's not a nice place. It's, it's uh, 50 miles away, but that's at least 10, hour, uh, 10 days uh, uh, travel by foot or by whatever means they had. And it, it's across the Dead Sea. It's on the other side where all the pagans live. The enemies of Israel lived. But somebody made a decision whether it was her husband or Naomi, whether she was the dutiful wife that said, dear, I don't think we ought to do this, but you're my husband, I'm going to go along. I hope that's the case. It seems as though when we get to the next phase of decisions that she's made, it seems as though maybe that's not the case. It's possible that she was the other side of that coin. She was the nagging mother that said to her husband that said every time you see, it was a famine in the land. Every time he brought the paycheck home and he said, you know, honey, this is all we got to live on. And he, she said, ah, can I raise these two boys on this? You got to give me more than that? Do something? He said, but I can't. There's no food. I'm begging. I'm working my finger to the bone. And finally, after days and weeks of, uh, I'm surmising this, but he said, woman, I'm going to get you out of here. We're going to go someplace where I think there's some food and pack the bags and went to Moab. I don't know which it was, but I know this. There was a family decision to move from point A to point B where God didn't want them to be. You can, you can wait out the famine if you'll do it. Now, interesting thing, because God even takes their bad decisions and brings out glorious results, as we'll see at the end of the book. But God doesn't want you to make those bad decisions. Number one, let's go to Moab. When they get there, 
The two young men, I don't know again how old they were, be they teenagers or older uh, enough that they would be close enough to marrying age. Her husband dies, her two boys being marrying age, marry girls of this pagan land. And now she no longer, she's a widow, she doesn't have a husband. She has two daughters-in-law who she doesn't have any idea what they believe. And their culture was diametrically opposite of what they, she had come out of. Again, the decisions are spiraling downhill. Instead of bringing relief from the famine in Bethlehem, it brought more grief. I don't know if you've noticed that if you make decisions in those crisis moments and you make decisions like these decisions and move where God wants you to where God doesn't want you, you may imagine it's going to relieve things but in most cases, it's just going to amplify things. Number two. Now here comes the part of the transition and transformation. Look in verse 6 and 7. We see Naomi getting to the bottom of the crisis. And that's where most of us have to get before God really gets a hold of us. Uh, it says here in verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard the country of Moab, uh, uh, she had heard, <laughs> boy, I'm telling you, bifocals, there you go. She had heard in the country of Moab, that is where she was living, how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, country of Moab, and her two daughters-in-law with her. They went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Decision number two. Understand, when you see those two words, arise and return, it kind of makes me think of the prodigal son. <laughs> you know, uh, um, my motive when I, as a teenager, uh, got saved that night in that revival meeting. My motive was not this glowing uh, motive. I just love God so much, I want to know him. Do you know what my motive was? I heard somebody preach that if I didn't repent, I was going to go to hell. I didn't want to go there. That's a pretty selfish motive. But God will take you. Her motive was not, I want to go back to the land of my fathers and I want to get things right. No, her motive was, I hear there's food back there. God will take you wherever you are. If you get low enough, the prodigal son got to that point, did he not? He was in the hog pen and he said, he said he, and it said, he came to himself. When you reach the downward spiral after 10 years in this case, and uh, some of us, 15 and 20 years in our cases, um, uh, it takes to reach that bottom, and then we come to ourselves, and, and then we, like she, get up and begin the trip back to where God wanted us in the first place. It's interesting to me. I said to you how God compressed 10 years into five verses. Do you know what he does from this point on? He stretches one year into 50 verses. 
What happens from verse 6 to the last verse of chapter 4 is about a year's length of time, enough time to get back home, become engaged, become married, have a child, and wow, the transformation is accomplished in just 50 verses. Uh, God's more interested in the deals of your, uh, the details of your transformation than he is in the gory details of all your failures, you know. Everybody else wants to know about your failures. God's waving the flag of his transformation and saying, look what I did with this person because of decisions they made. Um, this is the end, of, not the end of the story, you see. Go on down in chapter uh, 1 to verses 20 and 21, or 19 and 20 and 21, 19 through 21. It says, so they went, you know, I don't have to explain Ruth and she. So they went, she and Ruth, uh, so they went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? But she looked a little different after 10 years. I look a lot different after all these years. Grayer, more stooped. It's amazing what grief and sorrow and problem will, uh, how it'll etch its, itself on your face. Is this Naomi, the pleasant one? She said, oh, no. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter, for... Here's the, here's the third decision. The third decision was to express her ignorance. Be careful that when somebody asks you a question or interacts with you, be careful that you don't interact in kind because you might just reveal what's on the inside. Look what she reveals about her decision to express her ignorance reveals, even though she made the decision to come back, there's still the healing that hasn't taken place. Look what she says about God. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. Number two, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home empty. Didn't have anything to do with your decisions? Go on down. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me? Haven't you read Romans chapter 8 yet? If God be for us, who can be against us? You get it, don't you? And yet, somewhere in the framework of our mind, that when crisis comes, we somehow feel as though God's lost control. We use the theological term sovereignty. But the that's just the word we use to describe that he's in control. He rules uh, the Trumps and the uh, Bidens and the whoever else you can, the, the, what's the Russian guy and the, the Chinese guy and, and the Ayatollahs. They don't rule this world. Daniel 4 makes it clear. Nebuchadnezzar didn't rule the world. God simply allowed him to function. It is God who rules in the kingdom. That's called sovereignty. Either, and we've gone through crisis, and somebody said to us, I think our son-in-law said this to us, he said, either you believe God is sovereign or you don't when we're in the crisis. 
Is he really ruling? Or is all the chaos around me so bad that somehow God must, you know, maybe he's asleep. You know, maybe he really isn't in control. Do you either believe it or don't? Number two, you either believe in the providential hand of God or you don't. Um, Romans 8, 29 and 28, all things work together for good. And uh, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predict. God knows. It, nothing catches him by surprise. Charles Keene said to me one day, he said, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? I said, no, <laughs> I guess not. And I was a young kid. I, I guess I didn't think that deep. I was about that shallow, and he was thinking that deep. And just it made me realize that it doesn't catch God by surprise. Your, your crisis, my crisis, it doesn't catch him by surprise. He's not caught off guard. And yet, in the mind of Naomi, she still has this ignorance of who God was even though as a, in a baby step she chose to arise and return, she still not had, did not step over that threshold of recognition that God's in control. Look in chapter 2. Now it's the harvest time. Isn't that interesting? He brought them back just the time to get some food. They were hungry. And they only had a kinsman of her husband. A man, a mighty man of wealth of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, uh, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him, in whose sight I shall find grace. Now, you don't quite, we don't quite understand this. Uh, if we have some poverty issues, we send people down to, uh, what is that agency where they get food stamps or whatever they're called today, some kind of health agency, um, if they're impoverished. And they write them, a, uh, give them a stamp or give them a card, or I don't know, EBT card, I don't know what they're called. Or get unemployment, or whatever the thing is. But that's not how the culture operated in Israel. In Israel, the wealthy farmers were by law not allowed to glean the corners of their fields. They would run the devices and they would glean all around, but all of those corners were left for anybody who had need. And on all those wealthy farmers' properties, you would find people who were in need, and they were there taking things, or they were not taking them illegally, but they were taking them for their benefit to be able to, to be. Um, sustained and it was certainly it was certainly for Naomi perhaps a milestone to overcome the embarrassment that I need some help I've been there more than once I just had to ask people man I gotta we just gotta get over this hump it's tough and when Ruth said to her, I'll go do that, she bit her lip, swallowed her pride, and said, okay, go. Do you know, do you know one of the, 
One of the benefits of being in a helpless situation, most of us don't like it. We've been, most of us have been there. One of the benefits of being in the helpless situation, like, like the three Hebrew children in the fire, the Son of God's in the fire with us in the helpless situation. We're not helpless. We're just in need of help. That's, that's different. You see? I remember in Carrollton, we had been, when I went to Carrollton Baptist Temple, I was a kid preacher. I was 28 years old. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I would preach in Alliance. When I came out of Bible school, nobody wanted me to come work for me. He said, ah, Junior, come home. He said, we'll figure out something for you to do. And after about five or six years, he is tired of me. And he said, time for you to go. And so I'm 28 years old, and I'm saying, what do I got to do? I got to feed my family. So I started pastoring this church. And it was a troubled church in those days, and we had some pretty lean years. And we did that uh, and, and, and coupled that with a young marriage. We'd gotten married at 18 years old, and, and now... Uh, we'd been married a number of years and we were approaching, I don't know, 19 years of marriage and, and uh, teenage children and all the struggles that, and, and, and all my own immaturity became uh, evident. And all of a sudden I found myself in a crisis point. Church family graciously rallied around us and allowed us time to grow as a family. And they kept us another 10 years. I, I could never get over that. They'd keep us that long. Not me, anyhow. I'd keep my wife. They'd kept her forever. But I think back over those years of how when you get to that crisis point and you just, you know, I don't know what to do. I, I need help. <laughs> and they said, we'll help. I preached for them about a month or two ago, and I told them, I said, you'll never know how grateful I am that you didn't toss out this young preacher when he need him, needed help. Another decision is made in chapter number two. She, by the way, if you look on down in verse five, four, five, and six, in case you think maybe they just, Ruth went in there incognito and nobody knew who she was. You see that verse 4, 5, and 6. Immediately she showed up on Boaz's field and the reaper said, oh yeah, hey, that's that Moabitess girl. She's, she came back. She's widowed and she's with Naomi. And everybody knew in that little town. You don't get away with anything in a little town like that. You know, Bethlehem. Old little town of Bethlehem. No incognito when you come into crisis. Look at the fifth decision, verse 20 of chapter 2. Again, I don't need to give you all the details. She came home that day, and her bushel basket was brimming over. She said, Naomi said to her, uh, her daughter-in-law, verse 19, she said, Where hast thou gleaned today? Where wroughtest thou? Blessed be he that did... Uh, did take knowledge of thee. My goodness, look at all this stuff you brought home. And you remember in the previous verses, Boaz had seen her and said to his workers, he said, you make sure to drop a bunch of stuff down there on purpose. You know, I don't want her to go home hungry or I don't want her to go empty. And so she came home with a big bushel and, and Naomi recognized and, and noticed the next verse. This is the first positive word, even though it's kind of vague, the positive, first positive 
word that comes out of the lips of Naomi about the Lord that I can read to this point. Look in verse 20. And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be ye of the Lord. She recognized that the Lord was the blesser of people. Who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead, speaking of her husband and to Ruth's husband. I'm glad that God hears even those little glimpses of positive affirmation that come along the process. It's, sometimes it's painful, the transformation of our lives. I wish it was quick. I wish it was a magic wand. I wish it had all happened that night at the altar when I trusted him as my Savior. I wish it, all the transformation. But John said, we don't know what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we'll be like him. I'm not like him yet. But we're being changed from glory to glory. Naomi transformed from bitter, from unfruitful. We'll see where she ends. Look in chapter 3. A decision was made somewhere along the line at this point. She said to her daughter-in-law, Naomi said, My daughter, shall I, shall I not seek rest for thee? that it may be well with thee. After she told her whose field she had been in and the relationship that Boaz had with her late dead husband, the wheels began to turn in Naomi's mind. If the previous chapter gives us the first glimpse of her positive affirmation about the Lord, this is the first glimpse I hear of her beginning to look at others and... Um, going beyond looking at themselves. When you're in the crisis, guess what's the most significant thing? You. She's coming out of the crisis. She's beginning to see the hand of God. And when she begins to see the hand of God, she begins to want it for somebody else. She said, daughter-in-law, daughter, Ruth. She said, I'd like to have some rest for you. I don't want you to work like this for the rest of your life. Um, I'd like to see a rest for you. Now, it's interesting here. If you go back to chapter 1 and look in verse 11, when Ruth first made the declaration she was going to go back to Bethlehem with her, what did Naomi say to her in chapter 1, verse 11? Naomi said, turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that ye may be, they may be your husbands? What if I have a kid when I get back to Bethlehem? They've got to grow up. Now you're 10 years or 20 years older, and now they're 20, marrying age. Are you going to wait? She says. But now she begins to see. There's hope. Not just for me, but there's hope for Ruth. You see back in verse... Uh, one of chapter three, she makes the decision to impart some hope to her own daughter-in-law. There can be rest for you. 
you can bring seed into the family of your husband. The last decision is found in chapter 4. And I'm not going to give you all the details, but chapter 4 talks about how the courtship was initiated in chapter 3 and then how the courtship, the legal matters were resolved between Boaz and the next of kin or nearest of kin. And then the marriage was performed and, and lo and behold, by the way, we're not talking about two, we're not talking about two young starry-eyed people, Boaz and Ruth. He's an old bachelor, and she's a widow woman, and they marry, and a child is born. Look how different the picture looks at the end of the book relative to Naomi than at the beginning. All because a series of decisions you're making decisions now that are going to impact your life. Someone will make that decision from Bethlehem to Moab, and guess what? You might have to go to the prodigal son pig pen before you start the process of coming back out and arise and return. You don't have to, but you're making decisions. But wherever you are in the process, having made the decisions in the hole or coming back out of the hole, the decisions are the are the stair steps to determine the destination. You make the wrong decisions. You can't change. Uh, I can't get in my car tonight and start heading west on 30 and expect to end up in Alliance. Because the direction I head is the direction I'm going to end. That's pretty simplistic, but it's the, it's the obvious, isn't it? The decisions you make are going to determine the destination you arrive at. And so here she is in chapter 4, and Boaz takes Ruth. Uh, she was his wife, verse 13, and he went in unto her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. And the women said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name be famous in Israel. Remember her response the first time the women talked to her back in chapter uh, 1 when she came back home. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. I'm bitter. I'm cranky. Let me alone. Here she says, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of life and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons hath borne him, and Naomi took the child and laid it in her bosom and became nurse to it. Remember this, that she didn't get to this point of this baby in her arms without first making the decision back there in Moab to rise and return. God didn't force her to make any of those decisions along the way. But here she is, the beneficiary of multiple decisions until she arrives at this point that in her bosom was this baby that one day would be in the lineage of Jesus himself.
the long years, 10, in, 10 plus in Moab, one year here, the long years had come to fruition. And the benefit of good decisions or decisions, the benefit had finally transformed her from fruitless to fruitful, bitter to blessed. I suppose if we redirect our eyes from Ruth, which that's hard to do. You can't hardly read and study this without doing so because she really is the heroine of this book. But if we just redirect our eyes for just one moment, we see that legitimately Naomi, this subplot of the story, illustrates where most of us are. Few of us are Ruth's. Most of us are Naomi's. I'd like to say I've, I've been a, a Joseph who always stood up for God in the right places and trusted God in the right places, whether in the prison and jail cell or, or in the slavery. Or I, I'd like to say I'd been a Daniel that had knelt in front of the window in, in spite of the fact that an 80-year-old man being thrown in the lion's den. I'd like to say I'd been, but the truth is I have more in common with Naomi than I do with Ruth and Daniel and, and Joseph. You know. But I also would like to say that Along the way, there have been some decisions that have been pivotal, that have changed the course, the destination that we're at. You're making them, thousands of them. Perhaps every day you make hundreds at least, tens of thousands in a lifetime. And they will be the ones that determine your destination. How could she say anymore, holding this baby in her arm, God is against me? How could she say anymore, holding this baby in her arm, God, is, God has dealt bitterly with me? How could she say anymore, holding this baby in her arm, I went away full and now I am empty. The truth is, she went away empty and now she's full. You remember why she left in the first place? There was no food. And yet in the skewed view of our crisis, we think it's the other way around. What decisions are you making today? that will impact your tomorrow. Obviously the gospel decision, you know, I mentioned that at the beginning, the most important decision you'll ever make is when you bow your heart before a holy God and repent. What decision do you think the man on the cross values the most? The one that died beside the Lord Jesus? The decision to say, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I'm sure he, if, he repented for all of the other decisions he had made, obviously, in that one little blip. But that decision, what do you see, decision do you think Paul, formerly called Saul, valued the most? That decision on the 
the road to Damascus, when he said, Who art thou, Lord? He didn't care who it was. He just knew it was going to be Lord. And when he heard the name Jesus, he said, What wilt thou have me to do? Decisions. Are you born again? I would never presume because you, you bear the, the name Baptist that you're born again. B.R. Lakin said this, you can get baptized in every creek until the tadpoles know your social security number and still die and go to hell. My mom said you can buy a fancy label and put it on an empty bottle. It doesn't make the bottle any more valuable. If the Lord Jesus doesn't live in your heart, if all you have is a baptistry experience, if all you have is a church membership experience, um, young or old, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait another moment to make that decision to repent and trust Christ as my Savior. He died for you, rose again. He wants to live in your heart, but he won't force his way into it. Furthermore, what decisions are you making today that will affect the destination that you arrive at? How about obedience? Obedience to the Lord. There are some things that God wants us each to do. The joy of the Lord. Um, Nehemiah said that. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I have, a, I have a choice every day. I can be miserable or full of joy. That doesn't mean I have to be happy and clicking my heels and you know, all of that, but I can have the joy of the Lord deep down in my heart. I make that decision. No one forces it on me. I, I, we don't know the, the music to this. Sometimes people can pick it up, and I, I wish I was musically in kind where I could sing it to you, but I don't know. You probably don't remember. There, there's a big, heavyset man, fat, uh, Al Smith, he, he had Singspiration, uh, he and John W. Peterson. And Al Smith was 300, if he was less than that, I'd be surprised. But he would come to Carroll and he said, Moses, I want to come and sing and tell my stories. And he would come and sit on the platform and we'd put a chair up there and he'd uh, wind his way up there and sit down and then he'd tell about these stories. Here's one story he told our kids and to our adults, and, and the words of it resonate to this account. Listen to this, and it, it kind of makes me, it underscores the truth that God's in control, sovereign, uh, and, and God's, uh, um, God knows the future, providence, but he still relies or requires my decision to respond. Here's what Al Smith wrote in this little song. He said, I set, speaking of God, I set the boundaries of the ocean vast, carved out the mountains from the distant past, molded a man from the miry clay, breathed in him life, but he went astray. That's a decision. God could have said, nope, I'm going to make it so nobody will ever go astray. Listen to the chorus. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I write the music for the whippoorwills. 
control the planets with their rocks and rills, but give you freedom to use your own will. Your decision. I hold the waters in my mighty hand, spread out the heaven with a single span, make all creation tremble at my voice. But my own sons come to me by choice. Even the oxen know the master's stall, and sheep will recognize the shepherd's call. I could demand your love. I own you twice. But only willing love is worth the price. Your decision. And if you want me, and if you want me to, I'll make you whole. I'll only do it, though, if you say so. I never, I'll never force you, for I love you so. I give you freedom. Is it yes or no? Let's pray together. Perhaps tonight, you, like Naomi, have made some moves toward Moab, maybe a little distance away from where God had intended you to be. You don't have to be as far as she went. You don't have to be as far as the prodigal went. You don't have to be as far as the thief on the cross went, but you've made a few steps away from Bethlehem, the house of bread. Because whatever reason you surmise, a famine has come into your land. Don't try to fill that void anyplace else but in the place of bread. Make the decision tonight. I'll arise and I'll return. Stand together as we pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that we have this time tonight. And Father, thank you for putting these biographical sketches in your book so that we can identify with them and benefit by them. I pray, Father, that decisions that are being made tonight will impact eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You want to just play a song for us tonight? If God's dealt with your heart, I've decided that's it. Amen. Couldn't ask for a better song. To follow Jesus.